Today's scripture reading is Luke 18, 31 to 34. And when we get through, I'll have a prayer. Also, we're going to park remind me we need to remember Chuck Phillips. He had surgery this week, so I'll include him in my prayer after this. Luke 18, 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This this saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will, not, will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it, it leads us, it directs us, it shows us the way to you and your ways. We ask that you would open your word now. May our hearts... Through your spirit, Father, may they understand your truths. And Father, we do lift up our brother Chuck. We ask that you would have quick and complete healing and that he might once again be on your mission field. We lift him up now. We thank you for again for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brother. you ever been on a long road trip? Sometimes they can be a lot of fun, can't they? Sometimes, like one in ten. Uh, you know, you forget that there's a trajectory involved. You really enjoy the, the process. You stop over places and you see cool attractions. But then other times you think, this is just terrible. And you begin to ask with your children, are we there yet? Or are we ever actually going to arrive? It's been three long years of a journey of Jesus and his disciples during most of that time. And along the way, they have seen the deaf receive their hearing. and They've seen the blind receive their sight. They've seen those who were dead made alive. They've seen the lame walk. They've seen those who are demon-possessed freed from those bonds. They've seen some amazing things. But just like a lot of long journeys are both good and hard, they've also seen some really hard things. They've seen rejection. Even in Jesus' hometown where they tried to kill him. Along the way, the disciples have been confused Bold, foolish, humbled, loved, and taught. And now their journey is beginning to come to an end. The disciples don't really understand what's going on, but Jesus certainly did. There is a trajectory of this three-year journey through Galilee and Perea and Judea. We call Palestine that whole area of Israel now. 
He's had a destination in mind through all of these stories, true stories, true accounts that we find in the Gospels. Back in Luke 9.51, there is a shift. When Jesus goes from His teaching and healing ministries, he, he, he turns His face like flint and He begins the journey to Jerusalem. We're reading, when the days are near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And it's towards the end of this journey of the, His earthly ministry that we find ourselves in Luke 18. Where was Jesus heading? To suffer, to die, and to be raised up from the dead for you. And why would He do these things? Because He loves you. That's the takeaway today. Jesus loves you. Well, the scene now shifts from the teaching time in Perea, which is that bit on the other side of the Jordan River, like where the Israelites would have been staged before they went into Jericho. He's been over there teaching And now it's time to head over the Jordan River, heading towards Jericho and ultimately to Jerusalem. In Luke 18, we've seen much. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God and how we get into it. We've heard him teach about the importance of persistence and prayer and the dangers dangers of the love of riches and money. And now they get moving. And it's clear from this text and and the two other accounts of this text in Matthew and Mark that Jesus and His disciples are not alone. Not alone. Remember that Jesus picked up the twelve close disciples, but a lot of other folks too. Some who wanted to see what Christ was doing, others who truly believed in Him, and some folks who are just along the road hoping they'd get another free meal out of it. And so they begin along the long road that will take them through Jericho and Bethany, ultimately to Jerusalem. Peter had just piped up and asked Jesus about, well, we gave up all these things. What are you going to do for us? What's in it for us? And Jesus tells them, comforts them, yes, you will be rewarded for all that you have given up. If you've given up homes and families, mothers and daughters, children, you will receive this and more in this life and the life to come. But their sacrifice, as great as it was, and indeed ultimately it would lead to almost all of their deaths because of what Christ has done for them and called them to. All but John are martyred. Well, Judas uh, kills himself. But, but ten of these disciples will be martyred because of their faith in Him. But all these things pale in comparison to what is about to happen. What is about to happen. Jesus pulls aside the twelve from this larger group of disciples, just telling them in verse uh, 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus was on a divine errand. His mission was both His own and that of His Father's and that of the Holy Spirit's as well. And it had been in writing for hundreds of years. Here's how it happened. From before time began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit purposed together in what theologians call the covenant of redemption that God would save to Himself a people. The sin of Adam and Eve, this wouldn't be the end of God's love and mercy and grace and compassion towards His people. And so we see the the groundwork being laid in the Old Testament. Where God gives this promise in Genesis 3 of of one who would come and crush the head of the son of the serpent. 
Then we see God raising up Abraham and out of Abraham creating a a great people, greater than all the stars in the heaven and the sands on the seashores. They'll be numbered uh, even more so when they come out of Egypt, an incubator of growth, of hard growth. He'll give them a land after giving them a constitution at Sinai. He'll he'll lead them into into the area of Canaan where they will live. And He will rule over them by kings. He will give them prophets who will tell them, Thus saith the Lord. And He'll send priests to minister and intercede for them. But all of these things, indeed all of Scripture, all the law and the prophets, everything points to the coming of Jesus. The time is now full and it is here. All of this time of anticipation, now they're just days and weeks away from Christ coming in to Jerusalem, His holy city, Zion, city of our God, where He will accomplish once and for all the redemption of His people. The waiting was over. There was a trajectory towards this long roundabout journey over these last three years, and it was a trajectory that had been in place for all of eternity past, the redemption of God's people, of you and me. All of Scripture points to Jesus from, the, from the, um, the most explicit prophecies to even the most obscure holiness laws of Leviticus. They all point us to Jesus. But as we come to the cross, we see some very specific prophecies fulfilled. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Jesus actually picks up some of this language when he pulls the twelve aside to tell them what is going to happen. Or our text we read for our call to worship this morning, which ends with this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Whose guilt is it? My friends, it is ours. Why did he do all this? Because He loves you. He loves you. He was coming to earth. He came to earth and did these things for you. Things mean more when they're done personally, aren't they? Um, DirecTV or uh, one of these other satellite companies, they've gotten really clever in their advertisements. I don't know if you've received these in the mail, but they've, they've gotten rid of the dear resident stuff on the outside. And it doesn't just say Parker Johnson on the front. It looks like it's handwritten. And it's not even a business envelope. It looks like a personal card. And you open it up and it's this nice-ish stationery and you open it up and it has your name, looks like it's handwritten. And some of them even have a sticky note, a real sticky note that looks like it's been jotted on quickly by an agent. Just, just please begging you, please take this deal before it is finally gone. This is just for you. Things are more personal when they're done personally. How often have we spoken rightly of Christ dying for sins or bringing salvation? These things are true. But so often we forget how personal they are. That He would personally die for your sins and my sins, my actual specific sins, the things that I struggle with and think and do that are contrary to His Word, those things He died for because He personally died for you and for me. 
When you think of the cross, it is impersonal in that it is just some random piece of wood, but it is not impersonal because here is your Lord and your God, your Savior, your Redeemer, who has done this specifically for insert your name. And our sacrifice, and his sacrifice for our sins, Christ fulfilled the will of the Father. But we should be careful how we say that. That is true. But it's not like he went um, screaming to the cross. He would scream on the cross. But the Father didn't drag him to the cross. He went willingly. He desired to. He loved the idea of. Why? Because he loves you. And so in verses 32 through 33, we have this third and final explicit prediction that Jesus gives to his disciples about what is about to happen of his death and resurrection. And as we go through these seven verbs to describe what is going to happen, I want you to remember that these were done for you. The first thing is that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now the Greek term that is used here has two meanings. The first is is a legal term to be handed over to the authorities. Like we might say someone has been remanded into the uh, custody of the marshals. That's, That's the idea here. Someone is guilty or someone is charged and they are handed over to the legal authorities. And he would be handed over, handed up to the Jewish authorities and later to the Roman officials because... The Jews didn't have the authority to kill in first century Palestine. But the second is so much more destructive and devastating. And that is to be betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? I remember in in college, I entrusted a secret to a friend. And, uh, And then like two weeks later, we were with like eight or nine of our friends and he just starts talking about it. And in that moment, I felt so betrayed. What what, what would happen if you had walked with with three years with someone who who was entrusted with the money bags? Now Jesus knew, but he was betrayed how? With a letter? No. Impersonally? No. He was betrayed with a kiss. He was handed over. Here he was, Judas, betraying his master, the Lord of all creation, having taken Lord's Supper with him that night, leading forth potentially hundreds of soldiers to betray the Son of Man, the Messiah himself. Jesus came to save Gentiles and Jews alike. And here he is handed up by a Jewish traitor to evil Gentile men, both of whom he came to offer the hope of salvation. Why would he allow himself to be betrayed? Because He loves you. He did this for you. Next we see that He would soon be mocked. The idea of mock is a deep one. It means to hold in contempt or to scorn. It's not like saying you've done something wrong. It's you're worthless. You offer nothing to society. You're worse than worthless. Here is the God of all creation. And he openly subjects himself to open mocking. When would this happen? 
First of all, it would happen just by being put in fetters and chains. It would happen when the Roman soldiers put a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns saluting and bowing down before him in mocking shame. The soldiers who kept him the night before his death, they they beat him and mocked him. They would mock him by saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and then strike him. The crowds and Jewish leaders alike, as they gathered around the cross, they would mock the God of all creation. Even Herod mocked him. Even one of the thieves on the cross mocked him. Instead of worship, open scorn. Instead of praise of all creation bowing down before their king, he received open blows while he was tied to the post. Why would he go through all this? Because he loves you. He did this for you. Next, Jesus tells the disciples that he'll be shamefully treated. The world that Jesus lived in is much like the Eastern world today. The Eastern world today is not a guilt culture, it's a shame culture. In, in, in Jesus' day and in places like China and Asia, uh, it's, it's one thing to do something bad, but the big deal is if you're caught because it brings shame to your family. It brings dishonor to their name. It's something hard for, for us Westerners to, to fully understand. The trial and treatment of Jesus... These things were designed from the beginning to the end to be as public and shameful as possible. If they wanted to kill Jesus, they could have handled it very quickly by taking a sword and cutting off his head and the whole thing would have been done. That's not what happened, is it? You think about all the steps that Jesus went through and it was to bring him to open shame, to ruin his reputation and all those who followed him. This is the guy you like? This is the guy you love and serve? Let me show you what we're going to do to him. He's not worthy of your honor. Much of what they did to him wasn't designed to kill him. It was designed to kill his honor. The stripping off of his clothes, the bat, the, and they, they would barter them off. They drew lots for them. The open mocking, the spitting, the dressing up sarcastically like a king. These things were designed to make his experience of death as terrible as possible. Even crucifixion was meant not just to kill him, but to prolong his death. And there's no dignity for one who is nailed naked to a piece of wood. There's no dignity there. It is meant to bring him shame. Why was he willing to be shamed? Because he loves you. He did this for you. As part of this shameful treatment, they would spit upon him. Being spat upon is a big deal especially in a shame culture. In Deuteronomy 29, we read that a, um, that a man who would not provide an heir for his brother's widow was to be publicly shamed by the widow as she would come within the group of the elders and publicly spit in his face. Job chapter 30, verse 10, we, Job says that the young men in town no longer respected him, but instead did not hesitate to spit in his face. To spit upon someone in Eastern culture is still a way to show gross and utter contempt. How is this fulfilled here? Matthew 27, 30 says, The Roman soldiers spat upon him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. But isn't this what we do when we sin against Jesus? It's like we spit upon him again. I know what you want, king. 
but I'm going to do what I want. Our Savior would allow Himself, ordained it to take place. They would spit upon Him. Why? Why would He open Himself to such public shame? Because He loves you. He did this for you. Jesus said then He would be flogged. The Roman judicial punishment that's referred to here is called scourging. And it often preceded crucifixion in order to make what is an awful way to die even worse. In fact, many people would die from the scourging. They would tie you to post, stretch out your arms so your back is good and tight. They would take a cat of nine tails, which was a leather corded whip with bits of bone, metal, and glass tied in. And when they struck you, it, wasn't, it wouldn't just leave whelps. It would take your back with it. It would often wrap around you, tearing off muscle and bone, exposing the backbone and the ribs, often puncturing lungs. It was a horrendous thing. And Jesus knew it was coming. None of this was a surprise. Three times. In all three of, uh, three of the four Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and uh, Luke, He's going to say explicitly what is going to happen. Why would He allow Himself, the one who created the sinews and the muscle fibers in the back to bring glory to God, and here is your God who is fully God and fully man, why would He allow Himself for His muscle to be torn apart, blood everywhere, bloody pulp tied to a post? Why? Because He loves you. Despite your sin, despite your shame, despite your track record, your struggles, your trials, your hardships, despite all of those things, He loves you and was willing to do this for you. And finally, after all this, they would get around to actually killing Him. The Romans were really good at killing and making it long last time. Nailing His wrists with probably recycled nails on a cross that was probably stained with the blood of many others. Perhaps they used the old holes to make it easy to pound them in. Here he was, naked. There's nothing pristine about the death of our king. There was agony and screaming, wailing and gnashing of teeth. But it wasn't just the body of Christ that screamed out, but all of creation. There's three hours of darkness as the king was crucified. And upon his death, the veil was torn in two. And in one of the strangest passages of Scripture, we're not sure what to do with, dead people got up and walked around. Because the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, the Messiah, the Christ, had died. But all this, as terrible as these things are, Paled in comparison to the immense pain of the wrath of God being poured out on our Savior. Drinking it to the last drop, foaming in fury, dreadful as an intensity, and soul-crushing in its effect. Jesus experienced hell on the cross. For you and for me. The hell which we deserve, He took. Because my friends, we could spend hell and eternity and never pay off one of our sins. But our Savior would spend hell on the cross and because He was the perfect sacrifice, would pay for those sins. 
That we might be redeemed. Our sins might be atoned for. That we might be saved. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The praise be to God, the text isn't over. There are seven verbs and we've looked at six. The seventh is the most important. is that He will be raised. He will be raised. Anybody can die for anybody. But one of the things that sets apart our Savior's death is that God in His power and wisdom and might and authority and dominion and strength, He applies the death of another to us. He takes the death of Christ and He applies it to us, but this could not happen if Christ had not been raised from the dead. That God declared before all of creation that the sacrifice worked. That it meant something. That it accomplished what it was for. Will we understand? Verse 34. But they, the disciples, notice three times in one verse, Luke, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will tell us the disciples didn't have a clue what was going on. First, but they understood none of these sayings. Second, this saying was hidden from them. Third, they did not grasp what was said. Do you think the disciples understood? Now, it's not they didn't understand the, the, the words, because Peter understood in the first prediction that uh, what was going to happen. In fact, he, he says, he, the text says that Peter pulled him aside and rebuked Jesus. And <laughs> what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Later, uh, in John 11, Thomas is going to say, let's go to Jerusalem with him so that we might die with him. What they didn't understand is why. How is this all going to work? We thought this is the Messiah and he's come to bring the kingdom of God. They didn't understand that the kingdom of God was a spiritual kingdom. And this had to happen for our salvation. How will you receive this? Will you understand? This is what has happened for us. How is it, how is it applied to our account? What's the connection there? What's the thing that needs to happen in its faith in Christ? Your works cannot save you. Only Jesus can. And all those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That what He has done for you will be applied for you. For those who know Jesus... Marvel and remember what He has done for you. When you wonder if you're truly loved, remember what He has done for you. And in those hard seasons, remember what He will do for you when He comes back and takes us all home. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would come back soon and take us home. Come, Lord Jesus, and remake this world that it might be our eternal home, the new heavens and the new earth. Until then, O Lord, I pray that you would fill up the roles of your elect. Bring many more men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We thank you for his death, burial, and resurrection. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.